When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, it seemed like the beginning of a new era of Democratic Party success. Then the party went on to lose Congress, a thousand state legislative seats, and governorships across the country. What the hell went wrong? That's what we're going to try to figure out on this week's episode. Joining me now to discuss is Dave Sirota. David Sirota, you were the first person that popped into my brain when I heard Fourth Amendment. Does that have David Sirota worried? Boston Globe has now started picking up and running with a potentially politically deadly story that was first unearthed by the great David Sirota. God bless this guy, David Sirota. I love that guy. David Sirota is not a journalist, he's a hack. Even the New York Times has called you a populist rabble rouser. Okay? Are you a Che Guevara? Are you a Che Guevara for our age? Uh, and you look forward to a day when college students wear your face on their shirt and don't know what you did? More than a decade ago, Thomas Frank rose to prominence with the release of his iconic book, What's the Matter with Kansas? It was the height of the Bush era. America was at war, Dick Cheney was running the show, and Democrats were basically locked out of power. Tom's book identified one of the big problems. Working-class voters had abandoned the Democratic Party to support a Republican Party run by plutocrats. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah, of course it does, because it seems like a similar situation today, after Donald Trump rode a wave of working-class anger to the presidency. In his recent book, Listen Liberal, Tom hones in on what he says remains the big problem. The Democratic Party has been taken over by business elites, who have steered the party away from its traditional roots as the party of economic populism and turned it into a party of Wall Street. I caught up with Tom during his recent stop in Bloomington, Indiana. We chatted while he was waiting to go on stage to talk to students at Indiana University. He was there as part of his nationwide tour to discuss his book about the collapse of the Democratic Party. We chatted about what went wrong in the Obama administration, what went even more wrong in the 2016 election, and what Democrats can do to climb their way back to relevance. Basically, I think the Democratic Party is in is in deep trouble. Um, you know, the evidence of that is now plain, I think, to everyone, um, you know, that they are in a, in a state of historic wipeout, you know, across the country and in the, both houses of Congress. And of course, they lost the presidency, too. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Democrats have persuaded themselves up till now that they don't have a. I mean, this is the, the leadership of the party have persuaded themselves that they don't really have a problem, uh, that all they have to do is wait for Trump to screw up and they'll they'll waltz right back in. And so they, they don't have to do anything different. But I think um, Trump uh, has, you know, represents the sort of culmination of a long term shift of working people, working class people away from the Democratic Party. And in uh, Listen Liberal, I try to give the reasons, you know, why that might happen. So what's the matter with Kansas? You remember, it's a very similar story. What's the matter with Kansas is how the Republicans reach out to uh, working people. Listen Liberal is how the Democrats drove them away. Uh, and it's it's sort of the, you know, the last chapter of what's the matter with Kansas, you know, uh, elaborated on in a, in, a, in a, you know, to a considerable extent. I mean, the the one question that I have about that, though, is that this election was a pretty close election in terms of the uh, the electoral results. The Democrats could have won. I mean, they came close to winning. And had they won, would the narrative still be the Democratic Party is in chaos? In other words, that uh, it seems like a, a couple thousand votes shifted the narrative from the Republican Party is in chaos to the Democratic Party in chaos. So is the party really in chaos or did it just happen to lose, you know, one close election? Well, it's not in chaos. Uh, it's just uh, 
wiped out. I mean, they have a, a they ha, they've got the fewest number of state legislatures that they've had since the 1920s. You know, they're they they don't they don't hold either house of Congress. But they the the people in charge are absolutely convinced of uh, the the rightness of their approach. There there's no chaos at all. Um, but uh, I mean, you're right about the uh, the results could easily have been have been very different. And in some ways, I remember uh, a friend of mine saying. <laughs> at the, at the when the Republicans nominated Trump, saying you know it's a shame they can't both lose, and in a way they did, <laughs> you know. Exactly, I guess both party establishments in in a certain way lost. Although I guess Trump is not. It's hard to know where he fits into the Republican field. What do you think that the Democrats didn't do right in the election, and even more importantly, what are they not doing right right now? Look, you can talk about the sort of tactical blunders, you know, and the things that brought them down, email scandal or the premium increase in Obamacare and all that stuff matters. The way I look at it, it's, this is a long term problem. This is a culmination of a very long term problem with the, the Democrats very gradually but definitely abandoning the interests of working class voters, identifying themselves instead with a, you know, the more, a more affluent group with the affluent white collar um, professionals. And well, it, you know, it starts in the 1970s with the Democrats sort of removing organized labor from its structural position in the Democratic Party. And then it, you know, goes up through um, Bill Clinton getting NAFTA done. The, the free trade deals that the Democrats have, by the way, I, in my opinion, free trade or the trade agreements, I should say, was probably the, the issue that if there was one issue that really did Hillary in, I think that's what it was. The trade deals under the Clinton administration, Obama sort of dropping the ball on labor's various issues, doing these incredible favors for Wall Street while he uh, blew off the concerns of, of union. The ultimate evidence is what's happening with inequality. It gets worse and worse and worse every year. You, it's, it's very easy to show how the Democrats have sort of forgotten about organized labor, but it's, what is really striking is the, the sort of passion that they show for the knowledge industries, you know, which includes Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Big Pharma, that sort of thing. And, and, and the passion. The love. By, by that, <laughs> the, the, the love. The loyalty to The hot, steamy love. <laughs> I mean, where do you see it? The, where do you see it the most? Bailouts. The Wall Street bailouts was the worst. Um, this was, of course, George W. Bush. Well, no, go take a step back further. Uh, the deregulation under Clinton. Do you remember bank deregulation was something that we now think of it as one of the sort of central elements of neoliberalism. But Reagan couldn't get it done. Reagan tried. You know, they put some dents in Glass-Steagall when Reagan was president, but it, it took a, a Democrat to really get it done. Bill Clinton. And it wasn't just blowing up Glass-Steagall. There was this whole series of bank deregulatory measures. And when he was president, by the end of his term in office, basically, Wall Street was more or less openly identified with the Democratic Party. This is an enormous historical shift. So Nixon goes to China. Bill Clinton goes to Wall Street. Exactly. And, and how much of a shift, just so for, for people who don't know the history of this, I mean, how much well, of a shift isn't is Isn't it funny? Because a lot of young people, they, they're they not aware that the Democrats were, <laughs> you know, the Democratic Party was right. the sort of uh, sworn enemy of Wall Street. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, broke up all of these banks, you know, the Glass-Steagall Act, put all these banks out of business and set up the Securities and Exchange Commission to, to regulate these guys, you know, all of these regulatory measures. That's the Democratic... A heritage. That's the legacy of the New Deal. And that's who up until um, the days of Clinton, that's really who the Democratic Party was. They had a very populist tone and they 
they would never identify themselves with Wall Street. And yeah, it was it was to, to compare it to Nixon goes to China is exactly right. And Barack Obama comes in. And I was one of these people who thought, you know, that he represented a turn back in the other direction and that he would be very shortly would be getting tough with Wall Street. You know, he had all the the bailouts were underway. He had total authority over these guys um, and he didn't do it. You know, he instead he appointed all these various Clinton people to uh, come in and manage the bailout situation. Why do you think he didn't do it? That is the ultimate historical question about Barack Obama's presidency, and that's the shadow that will hang over him. That and then the Trump election, those two things are the shadows that will hang over his presidency forever. And we don't really know. He's never really said. But the theory that I sort of hammer at in Listen Liberal is that there's a kind of class solidarity between the people at the top of the meritocracy, the academic meritocracy, the kind of people that Barack Obama appointed to run all of his agency, the kind of person that Barack Obama is, quite frankly. There's a class solidarity between that group and the Wall Street people. They're forever expressing their admiration. I mean, before the crash, of course, before the financial crisis, were forever expressing their admiration for the Wall Street guys, talking about how creative they were, how sophisticated they were, how much they admired them. And by the way, David, I'm sure you know this because you're one of the best informed people I've ever met. But I was reading a interview with Barack Obama in Fortune magazine about three months before the election. And uh, they were asking him what he wanted to do in his post-presidency. One of the things he said was uh, venture capital. Yeah. Well, you say, of course, course. but this is the man that we thought we were hiring to get tough with Wall Street back in 08. And, you know, it's just, it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. And of course he can see that, you know, he doesn't think he did anything wrong. I'm sorry, I should shut up now. Well, I mean, I was going to say, when you've heard him talk about Wall Street and and what they've done with with financial uh, reform, they talk about uh, the Dodd-Frank bill as if it's Glass-Steagall, as if it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in terms of (laughs) re-regulating Wall Street. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying there weren't some decent things in there, but but they talk about it as if as if what they've done is the equivalent of a modern day FDR. Do you think that's they've deluded themselves or do you think it's all it's all kind of a, a ruse to and, and that side of the party, if you will, know, knows what kind of games it's. Well, playing. there's let me put it this way. Every everything that Barack Obama did, all of his great achievements in office, and there's basically only three of them, but all of them are half measures that were, you know, uh, horribly watered down by, uh, you know, a desire to do the exact opposite of what he was trying to do. So uh, Obamacare, the reason Obamacare is so incredibly tortuous and screwed up is because he was trying to preserve the private insurance companies, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, Dodd-Frank is the same kind of deal. He's trying to preserve the Wall Street banks and make sure nothing happens to them. And so, you know how Dodd-Frank isn't, they aren't even done writing it yet. It's it's incredibly long. I forget how many pages, 20,000 pages. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. But what about the argument that what you hear from them? They say, well, you know, we had a Republican Congress and we had to water it down in order to get it passed. I'd rather take a half a loaf than no well, they, loaf they, at all. Well, what that you wasn't that? correct at the time. This was before the Republicans got in. And you got to remember something about uh, about politics. It's not just inevitable that the Republicans are going to are going to take over. Had Obama, I mean, he had many opportunities to get tough with the banks in a, in a much more direct way. And I'm always reminding uh, audiences of this, you know, he could have put a bunch of these Wall Street banks out of business, put them into receivership. I mean, they richly deserved it. We put banks out of business every day in this country, Mr. Sirota. 
Uh, but the, the Wall Street banks were evidently um, above that. He didn't fire any of the executives. He, he, by the way, he did fire the chairman of General Motors. Uh, this is one of the things that Franklin Roosevelt's bailout agency did all the time was, uh, you know, fire the guys in the C-suite because they had clearly engaged in, you know, <laughs> risky activity or fraudulent activity. You know, Obama didn't even prosecute anybody. He did. There were civil suits against the banks, but those don't hurt anybody. Those were paid by the shareholders. The uh, uh, the managers, I mean, and the people that were passing off these obviously, clearly, blatantly fraudulent uh, derivative securities, nothing happened to these guys. By the way, uh, David, if you lied on a mortgage application in those days, yes, the FBI will come after you. But if you packaged up those <laughs> those mortgages and sold them to German retirees, you're you're in the clear. And that that it, oh, I that, that metaphor, I, and I've heard it, and it's it's absolutely apt. It's it's so it's so telling. I, mean, I want to go back to the to the point you said about about this class solidarity in the in the Democratic Party. It seems to me that that we've seen this a little bit before, back in the era of the so-called best and brightest. Uh, it, it reminds me of that about the Vietnam War. I mean, tell me a little bit of if you think that comparison is right. I mean, and 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 for for folks who don't know about that, the the best and brightest was was what was referred to when it was the the technocrats who ran the Pentagon in the lead up to and in the middle of the Vietnam War. Is 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 that a, a, a similar yeah, kind of thing? It's almost exact. Uh, it's, they're very similar groups. So let me put it this way. So I was a big Obama supporter in 08. Uh, you might remember that. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the reasons I really liked him is because I knew how smart he was. I had met Barack Obama and I was very impressed by him. And I knew that he would bring in, uh, smart people to run government. That was always the, that's, and by the way, that's always the word that these people use to describe themselves. Smart. Yeah. It's always, that's smart. always the word they use. Yeah, right. uh, uh, and, and this seemed like a really good idea after George Bush, right? After the administration of hacks and cronies and all the, the, the idiocy, just the, I mean, they'd run Washington into the ground. And I was really excited that here comes Obama. He's going to put in these very smart people. And it's Larry Summers, you know, and it's Tim Geithner. Larry Summers was, I mean, he's, supposedly the smartest economist of his generation. He's the president of Harvard University, you know, and all of these other guys go right down the list. And it's all of these people who are certifiable geniuses, right? They have very extremely uh, excellent formal academic credentials, and they proceed to continue the policies of the Bush administration towards Wall Street, basically unchanged. And so this is a huge uh, disillusioning moment for me personally. <laughs> you know, I thought we were going to see some cleverness in action. I thought we were going to see, you know, them taking, doing something innovative. No, it, it, you know, it's, it's the worst possible outcome. All right. So, so, so forced, forced to choose. Let me ask you this question. Forced to choose. Would you rather take, if these are your only choices, would you rather have a movement person who's doesn't have that formal academic training who may be arguably stupider. And I'm not saying this is the only choice, but if you were forced to choose between a movement person who was lower on the IQ scale than a Larry Summers versus a, the Ivy Leaguers with the formal training, uh, in the technocrats, if you will, in, in the government, who are you choosing? God, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I'll tell you, I do, there, is another, there is another option that I, I eventually figured out while I was writing this book. Because, you know, the first thing I did was to say, well, look, government by uh, expert has is failing us. 
uh, you know, I dig around in the past, has it ever worked? And the first thing you come across is the book you mentioned, The Best and the Brightest, when it, it, the same, the exact same thing happened during Vietnam, where you have these experts from, and again, they're fr mostly from Harvard, but from various other Ivy League institutions. And it's the same problem. They won't listen to voices from outside their discipline. And they show this extraordinary deference to one another, to the people, the people at the top. But so then I say, well, it, has there ever been a time when it worked? And this is where it gets interesting. Because of course there is, you know, government by expert has worked. The Roosevelt administration, they called them the brain trust. So I start looking, you know, it worked very well. They pulled us out of the depression. They won World War II. These guys were awesome. So you start, I start digging around. Well, who were these guys? And here's the, here is the fascinating thing. They were brilliant, but they came from all different walks of life. They weren't all these highly credentialed academic authorities. That's not what they were. And this is the thing that you finally realize. They're highly intelligent people, David, all over America from all sorts of backgrounds in all sorts of different industries you know the best minds in banking aren't necessarily at goldman sachs <laughs> that's a really interesting <laughs> you know? point i mean it's interesting to, to think about the the, the what, what you're really saying is is that it's 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 not the level of iq or intelligence or, yeah. or whatever it's that it's that it's a specific kind of of training a kind of experience that there was that a lot of people in the Obama administration had but it wasn't a very experientially diverse administration. No and and there's what I discovered also is there's a lot of pathologies of professionalism. Uh, and I, I mentioned, I mean, we've been talking about one of them, which is that they show this deference to one another at the top. Another is that they don't listen to voices from outside their discipline. I mean, you have the problem of, of orthodoxy. And it, the worst offender here, by the way, is is economics. I mean, this is a discipline. It's very well known. The, the, the sort of top names in American economics Remember, David, I went, I went to the University of Chicago and I have a very firsthand experience with these people and they get things wrong all the time. You know, they predict things that never happen. Things happen that they had never could could never have foreseen. You know, they're, they're just constantly, constantly getting things wrong and they're protected. They're shielded from any kind of accountability by the nature of the professional discipline. And so when you decide that this is how you're going to define uh, expertise. This is how you're going to define excellence is by going to the top people in a discipline like that. Oh my God. Uh, you know, I can predict even before you start what a disaster it's going to be. And there's many other disciplines that are the same way, political science. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, an endemic problem. The other problem, I talked about how they have this deference for each other at the top. They have zero solidarity for people below them. Zero. You see this in a field like journalism, where it, right now it's collapsing. And the people at the top, you know, at the Washington Post and the New York Times, who, by the way, also have this, these incredible Ivy League uh, credentials, and who think of themselves as the best, as the winners, as the most talented guys there are. Journalism is collapsing in this country, and they don't give a damn. They look around like, so the Kansas City Star is, is failing. So what? Here's what I realized. The, uh, basically, the unofficial philosophy of the Democratic Party is meritocracy as defined by education. Everybody gets what they deserve, and what they deserve is defined by how they did in school. And this is a, a pernicious doctrine in all sorts of ways, but one of the most pernicious ways is that there is no solidarity in a system like that between the people at the top and the people lower down in the hierarchy. And this is killer. Does that, does, 
Do you think that explains in part why after the election of a reality TV star, oh my the, election God. the Democrats <laughs> should have won, that we haven't seen much, much changeover inside the Democratic Party establishment in terms of personnel and leadership? Yes. And it's also that, uh, you know, a different thing that you have to realize, sort of a related point is that the two parties system is locked in by law. This is something I've I've learned. I mean, not you can start a third party if you want, but you're not going to succeed. Uh, because the, the the way the laws are in this country, it's 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 basically impossible. Uh, this has not always been the case, but it's the case now. And so the two parties know that they're never going to get a challenge from outside them. From you know, there's not going to be a challenge from the left, for example, to the Democratic Party. And so they, um, the essential question becomes holding on to the party machinery, and it's you know. All of these battles are battles over uh, party insiders and party machinery. And it, it, it's a similar, it's a related thing. Even there's no accountability. Uh, they can close off the gates and, you know, the, they can refuse to listen to people outside and insist that the world rally around them rather than the other way around. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. I mean, they're using every, the Democratic Party is using every tool available to them to stave off accountability right but you're but i mean it's you're, you're kind of making a defeatist argument in the sense of like you know they're not going to change oh, oh wait change. i actually there I actually, are some actually, who look at what's I going have, on no, now i'm glad you said that because there is a battle royal in the democratic party right now this is actually happening right now and here's the thing it's not being covered in the media can i can i can i change subjects very slightly no massively for sure. so, you know I'm a journalist, right? Go ahead. Used to be one or whatever you want to say. And um, of course, I have never seen the media behave the way they did in the 2016 election. This is new. I have never seen such unanimity from uh, in endorsements. I've never seen such unanimity from op-ed columnists and editorials uh, in you know the newspapers that matter, the Post and the Times. And uh, 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 the, the, the New York Times even ran a story on page one at some point during the election saying basically that that uh, journalists have decided they don't want to be objective anymore and they are entering the fight on the side of Hillary Clinton. I mean, there's this weird way in which elite journalists, the journalists at the very top of the profession, identified with Hillary Clinton in this passionate way, in this way that is like way beyond uh, liberal bias or something like that. I mean, they... they they they, well, they think she is one of them. You know, it, your your piece in in Harper's about what happened to Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary got right to the heart of this. And it's a fascinating piece. And I encourage everybody listening to this to go check it out. And, and Tom went through all many of the different ways that it, it became very clear that the traditional legacy media was bought into the Clinton campaign. So the question that I came out of that article wondering about is, what do you think explains that? Is it economics? Oh, is it that's, class? That's is it a class. mixture of both? Uh, what that is one it? right there. So it, basically, uh, yes, it is. Again, it's the exact same thing. It's the solidarity and deference among these people at the top of these hierarchies. They all come up, remember, by the same sort of ladder of achievement. It's school. Uh, it's SATs. It's uh, Ivy League. Look at who's on the Washington Post op-ed board uh, or editorial board sometime and just count the Ivy League uh, pedigrees. These people, they all know each other. And by the way, this is a sort of classic uh, problem for journalists, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, identifying with their source 
you know, getting too close to the source. Oh my God, did it happen? And here's what makes it weird, David. Can I just keep going with this? Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the most unpopular and the second most unpopular presidential candidates of all time. The Republicans knew to keep Trump at arm's length and sort of, you know, sort of stay away from him. You know, they didn't go to the convention and stuff like this. Among Democrats and liberals, it was the opposite. They embraced Hillary. They could see no fault. They still can't. You know, she was the most admirable presidential candidate of all time, they thought. The perfect, ideal presidential candidate. And 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 to go back to Bernie Sanders for a second, I mean, here we now stand, and we have we have Bernie Sanders as the most yes. popular politician. Yes, isn't America, that a, isn't that amazing? I mean, uh, we, it's incredible. And yet, but what's striking is that you have a Democratic Party that still has an uneasy relationship with him. That is, the Democratic leadership still has a kind of uneasy relationship with him, even though he is the yeah. most popular politician in the country. I said to a friend recently, I said, you know, if a Wall Street Democrat, a more so-called centrist Democrat, was the most popular politician in the country. It would be nonstop we'd be hearing about this person uh, from Democratic leaders, from DNC press releases and the like. The fact that it's Bernie Sanders is is like he still has an uneasy relationship with the party. Yes, yes. And with the press. I mean, the, the remember in my story in Harper's about how the Washington Post really hated this guy they i mean they 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 despised him in a, in a kind of weird way and the reason i say it's weird is because he he's not a hateable figure you know in my mind he seems like a sort of lovable you know lovable old grouchy guy you know i like him but they despised him it was it was really strange well so let me ask is it is it the is it the so-called self-described socialism is it the um you know, Bernie's a, you know, older lefty guy from Vermont. What, what, what is it that, that explains that? I mean, he likes to use that word, but if you look at what he was actually proposing, it, it's not really very socialist. It's more like what Harry Truman was proposing in 1948. You know, <laughs> that's pretty much what it, it's warmed over New Deal stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. It's a, he's a Democrat. He's a, he's an old school, old school Democrat. And so that's the key. OK, because for the kind of people that you and I are talking about here, they they think they put that form of Democrat behind them long ago. You know, that was what Clintonism was all about, was was uh, finally breaking the ties with the New Deal, finally ending the legacy of the New Deal, you know, moving the Democratic Party away from that. So they look at a guy like Sanders and he is he is the return of the repressed or something right this is <laughs> this is the this is the the politics that they thought they had they had you know put in a box and nailed it shut and threw it over the uh, you know threw it into the river you know and uh, and here it comes so from a from a, <laughs> at a at a politician level what's your explanation for why a democratic politician would want to throw that New Deal legacy overboard. Let, like, let, let's use the healthcare debate as an example. Here we have a debate between, you know, Trump's proposal, which is basically pay or die, yeah, uh, and Obamacare, <laughs> which is which is basically, you know, pay an insurance subsidy or 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 you know or die. Uh, and you've got the most popular healthcare program in American history, which was a Democratic Party program, Medicare. Ex- the idea of expanding that program is completely off the table in terms of exactly, the exactly. So. so so why is that? I mean, if you're a Democratic politician, you're looking at polling about Medicare and you're saying, hey, that's a very popular program. Maybe I should I should propose expanding that. Instead, that's not part of the debate. Why? OK, that's that's an excellent question. And uh, 
I mean, a big part of it is that Obama was determined to, when he got some form of national health insurance, he was determined to also preserve uh, Big Pharma and preserve the insurance companies. So there, there's that. Then the question is, why does Obama want to preserve those industries? Why does he care about Big Pharma? And I would suggest that it's the same motive as, as with Wall Street, that he looks at this industry and he sees something that he really admires. This is the creative class at work. These are, you know, geniuses. They're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, you know, that whole section of, of, uh, of Boston where they're, you know, all the, all the big pharma is, and they're all developing these wonderful new drugs. He doesn't want to harm these people. I mean, and this is not just in Obamacare. This is in the trade agreements, that, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. His desire to protect this industry, uh, you know, uh, that he clearly regards as uh, something special. Uh, you know, something that that can't you you don't just uh, regulate these guys. You don't I just wonder, I wonder how this. much. But I wonder how much of it is is a power equation in this sense, which is how much of it is. Do you think it's uh, I, I respect the intellect of, let's say, pharma CEOs and pharma executives versus how much of it is those people are extremely powerful they have created a system that is extremely powerful and extremely dug in. And I am a reformer, not a revolutionary. And so yeah. I'm trying to tweak the, the machine that I, I've been given. I'm not trying to re, redesign the machine. Look, when I interviewed Obama uh, in 2006, he basically said that. He basically said, I'm not a revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there's that too. And there's the, uh, the, uh, the, the endless desire for consensus, which is, by the way, this is another thread and listen liberal this this pining that these guys have for consensus and they're constantly shying away from from fights you know like what what happened to uh the public option which was a pretty good uh you know uh, uh halfway sort of you know meet you in the middle sort of thing uh, uh but these people are constantly the the sort of democrats that i'm describing they worship consensus and bipartisanship basically above everything else. This is the sort of household God in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so, you know, it's it, Obama took a Republican health care proposal and, and got that done. By the way, another interesting fact, as he left office, one of the articles that he wrote, he lamented not getting the public option done. But a funny thing about the public option, and I don't want to belabor this too much because, you know, it was just a, a passing uh, proposal. But when it was up for debate, do you remember the media reacted to it in very much the way they reacted to Bernie Sanders? This is impractical. This is ridiculous. This is some kind of pie in the sky dream. And you liberals, are, you liberals are idiots for uh, for caring about it. And here's here, you know, and they got their way. It disappeared. But here's Obama as he leaves office. <laughs> the same what a mistake. It yeah, was well, I mean, to and, not and, press and I don't that. know if I haven't read the book, but I. I, the, the the complaint, the lament is not only that you didn't pass it, you didn't even really try to pass it. That's you right. didn't go That's to right. Connecticut and pressure Joe Lieberman. You didn't go to Montana yeah. and but pressure you could, your you could say that You could say that about so many things uh, in, in Barack Obama's presidency, that, that he, he just didn't lift a finger. There are all of these things he just simply did not care about, and he just let him go. Uh, starting with cram down, you remember that one? I and, remember, of and, course, of course, on the and, uh, on the, the the home mortgage prices yes. and whether you're going to take on the banks and force them to basically lower the amount that homeowners yep. owed. Yep. That's right. And, do and, that. and continuing with card check, which was organized labor's one 
demand. You know, they wanted some way to make it make it easier to form a union in America. And he's like, oh, what did you just say? I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I didn't hear that. <laughs> you yeah, know, he heard it on the campaign trail. He didn't hear it. He didn't hear it when yeah. he was. Uh, yeah. He was or antitrust. I mean, there are all sorts of things like that uh, where he just uh, lost interest once he was elected. Tom, I'll, I'll I'll let you go. Listen, thanks, man. I really appreciate you taking the time before your book event. Enjoy Indiana. I actually love Indiana. I'm, I'm a, it's a red state. My wife's from there, but I I absolutely love it. And um, I hope you have a good time. And if you're if you're going out to a bar tonight, or ask anybody there uh, if you want to have a drink, go place. It's called Sink the Biz. Go ask them about that. Apparently, that's the game in the bars <laughs> okay. in Bloomington, Indiana. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. All right. Sink the Biz. Enjoy it. See ya.